I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is number six of the 5049 Records Corona Cast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and today, a person who I believe to be the greatest pastry chef in these United States. Today we're joined by Natasha Pickowitz, a colleague, friend, and uh, just all around tremendous person. Before we start talking to her, let's listen to a little bit of music being made on the ARP 2500 by Eliane Radik. music of Eliane Radik is meant to be savored over a long period of time, an hour at minimum. So to give you guys a little sample, just like that is not really doing it justice. She's a favorite composer of mine and a favorite composer of today's guest. Today on the show, pastry chef Natasha Pickowitz. Before we get into it, uh, a few bits of business. First of all, thank you guys all so much who uh, sent me birthday wishes last week. That was very sweet of you. I, I it, it meant a lot to me, and thank you for those of you who sent questions in, who took part in last week's podcast. And thanks uh, even more to everyone who's picked up a copy of Sestemba Mundi Totius, my new record. There are still some copies left in the physical format, if that's what you're into. To get one, go to the 5049 website. That's www.5049records.com. If you want to pick it up digitally, go to Bandcamp. That's the best way to get it. Uh, they are Bandcamp has been absolutely tremendous to musicians during this time of quarantine. Uh, and then if you just want to hear it on Spotify or Apple Music, it'll be there in a couple weeks. It'll be on all the streaming platforms then. But for now, go to the 5049 website or Bandcamp. All right. I resurrected this podcast six weeks ago at the start of quarantine. My promise is and has been to put up a new episode every week during the entire duration of quarantine. And unlike the episodes I've been doing for the last six weeks, today's we're not, we're not doing the, the, the crowdsource questions. Today is an old school fat chewing session between me and a guest. But I do think despite what I said on the last few shows about not wanting to spend a lot of time up front talking about uh, the show and the guest, I do think that today's show will benefit from a bit of context given right here at the top of the show. Since 2013, this podcast has been about uh, improvised music, Experimental music, electroacoustic music, jazz, uh, conversations between myself and musicians sort of working at the fringes of, of underground music. And today on the show, I have a pastry chef, a celebrated pastry chef. As I said, I think one of the very best around. I'm sure that there are people listening to today's show who have never checked out this podcast, who are checking it out because... Uh, Natasha has a lot of fans, for good reason. And then I'm sure plenty of you who have listened to a lot of this podcast, again, are saying, why is there, why, why is, why is there a pastry chef on, on the show that I listen to to hear musicians talk about their process? I'm going to try and paraphrase this as, as quickly and as cleanly as I can. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do. 
Many of you know, people that have listened to this show for a while, people that know me, know that I've always, throughout my entire uh, creative output, earned the bulk of my living working in restaurants. Music as an act of creative self-expression has been and always will be the most important thing I have in my life. My creative practice, my relationship to the horn, my relationship to the musical community that I've sort of built around myself and, and, and have you know, submerged myself into will always be the most important thing in my life. But along the way, working in restaurants, and, and really, I have to say, this, this, these last two months of quarantine, and Natasha and I talk about this a bit on the show today, have really highlighted for me uh, the real love and appreciation that I have for the service industry and those who are in it. I could go on and on about the trouble I've had reconciling the two things in my mind, uh, it, it, it's something that goes back to a really, 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 really ancient part of my being. I've worked in restaurants since I was 13. And if quarantine has taught me anything, it's that you have to sort of honor and appreciate and respect the entirety of who you are and what it is that you do. So, Natasha Pickowitz. Natasha is a co-worker. I met her uh, three years ago. We worked for the same restaurant group. I met her starting at my job within the restaurant group that we both work. And I was able to put, I, I recognized her, I knew her, I said, I know this person from somewhere, and I was pretty confident it wasn't from the world of restaurants. Or maybe it was. I I didn't know. And through, you know, I, I did that thing where, like, I, I was like, I, I got to fucking figure out how I know this person. So I Googled her, and I found this interview that she did with Charles Curtis, the cellist, the cellist who is known uh Mostly, you know, for interpreting the work of composers like Eliane Radic, Alvin Lussier, Morton Feldman, a really singular musical voice. And I found this interview that Natasha had conducted with, with Charles from back in, I think, 2010. And I, I went up to her, you know, this is like my third day at this job. And I said, hey, I read that interview that you did. Like, like we're from the same place, you know? It's it's a really funny thing to be, you know, you devote your life to this type of music that is kind of esoteric. It's not something that a lot of people can feel immediately familiar with. And it, it can be lonely, you know? I, I have no problem with the day job. I've always had the day job. I love the day job, if it's in a good restaurant. But to have, you know, so much of your life be sort of based around this music that is, quite frankly, music for the few. It's not music for the many. That's not an elitist statement. It's, you know, it's, that's what it is. So right away, I think uh, Natasha and I saw this opportunity to have a friend and colleague in the, the hospitality business that we're in who also has this deep love for unusual music. We got to talking, we got to knowing each other uh, a bit more, and, and, you know, beyond just being, you know, enthusiasts about this music, you know, she, she wrote for Paris Transatlantic, for those of you that remember that. 
she was when she lived in Ithaca, she was booking underground DIY shows. I'm talking about people like Bill Nace and Chris Corsano, KO Dot, you know, my good pal Toby. We just we have this whole world of commonality. And in the last three years of, of working at this job, it has been so nice to have this pal, this like this person who really sort of understands this really important part of my life, you know? We talk about it uh, a bit on the show today, but it, you know, it can be kind of like lonely and isolating when you have this thing that you care so much about and you're working within it and then you go back to your, like, your, your nine to five life and it's something that like no one, you just, you can't, I, I, I always, I've always made a concerted effort to keep my worlds separate. My friendships exist in one place. My creative life exists in another. My 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 work life in yet another. And it's kind of like opened up a side of me to have this friendship with Natasha. So let me explain a bit before we get into it today uh, about today's show. So Natasha, uh, she's born and raised in San Diego. Both her parents professors at UCSD. She explored the world as as a writer she explored the world as uh, 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 a a person who loves music and where she landed in 2013 was here in new york city working in restaurants and since she started doing that she's made a tremendous impact like i said we work for the same restaurant group and i wouldn't work for a restaurant and a chef who i didn't have a tremendous amount of respect for and I certainly, that is definitely the case with the chef that Natasha and I work for, Ignacio Matos. I think he's the best chef in New York. Natasha's food is poetic in a way that my most favorite music is. It's subtle, it's, it's nuanced, it's, it's understated, it's strong where it needs to be strong, it is thoughtful. You know, you can, like, I've, I, I've literally said this on this show a thousand times about my favorite music. It's music that you can you can just close your eyes and enjoy. But if you want to start taking apart the layers, if you want to open up the engine and look at what's inside, you're going to be pleased by the complexity of it. That's Natasha's cooking. And just so we're clear and that we're all on the same page, this isn't just me hyping up a friend. Right now, Natasha is a semifinalist for, I think, the third or fourth year in a row for an award from the James Beard Foundation as, as Best Pastry Chef. You know what I'm saying? She was on Ina Garten's show uh, uh, like a few months ago. Like she, she's, This isn't like a little kid pretending to make you know pastries and cakes. This is a true master that we're talking to today. One thing I'll say about Natasha Pickowitz, she knows delicious. We use the word delicious a lot on today's show. And today's show uh, happens at kind of like, I think, a bitter, I, I'm going to speak for Natasha, at sort of a, a bittersweet time in that starting four years ago, Natasha started doing a bake sale. A bake sale to benefit Planned Parenthood. It was uh, sort of, I think, I think, again, I'm speaking for someone, uh, an immediate response to the Trump presidency. In the first year, it was a hit, you know. 
she got she called up a bunch of friends, a bunch of other bakers, a bunch of other restaurants, and said, "Hey, we'll do this Sunday afternoon bake sale. We'll try and earn a little money. We'll donate it to Planned Parenthood." And it was it was a hit, you know. I think they you know raked in like a few thousand bucks. Fast forward three four years later, the bake sale last May raised over a hundred thousand dollars. Now, again, looking for, for parallels, you know, between what I've talked about on this podcast about music and, and today's show, me talking to a pastry chef, one of the things that has always inspired me most in, in a person's creative output is when people do something, and they do something strong, that they weren't asked to do. They, they created something because they thought it should exist, you know? That is when you find something special. And that, that's how I interpret Natasha's uh, work with, with this bake sale. It's tremendous. Um, but she's also just a, a great friend. She loves experimental music. She's, you know, she's fucking, honestly, she's paid more dues in the world of ex- underground music, DIY music, experimental music than a lot of musicians have. So today is a great episode that I am honored and delighted beyond words to, to present. Many of you probably know I've always had a policy of not doing phone interviews. It's always got to be, you know, 200 some odd episodes, always face to face. We're in quarantine. So today, this is me FaceTiming with Natasha. You know, the audio isn't as great as I wish it could be. But today is a really, really, really good talk. And normally, this is the part of the show where I recommend you check out someone's website. I, I, I recommend you check out their records. Look, when this quarantine is over, Let's go out to eat. The food that Natasha puts up and the restaurants in which she puts it up, Ultra Paradiso, Flora Bar, the food is fucking slamming. And if you want to taste what soulfulness tastes like, you know, we know what it sounds like, but if you want to know what it tastes like when it's operating at the highest level, you're going to check out Natasha's food. All right, we're, we're, this is 14 minutes already. I've talked a lot. Uh, I hope you guys dig today's show. For those of you that have never listened to this podcast, you should know that this is not like a standard interview show. This is a conversation. You know, I, I, I want to connect with people. So this isn't me asking a question and then kicking back for five minutes. It's a, it's a conversation. I hope you don't get frustrated by that. Uh, this is me and my good pal, Pastry chef extraordinaire, Natasha Pickowitz. Wow. <laughs> this is going to be fucking video? Are you kidding me? No, 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 no. I'm just, I've got uh, FaceTime plugged in just to record oh. the audio. Okay, word. Okay. And this way. Fuck. What? No, 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 no. <laughs> you were scared about like makeup or something? I mean, you know, it's yeah. just a little raw right now. That's all. Have you been outside today? I have. Where'd you you go? I went to the farmer's market in McCarran Park at like 8 a.m. Really? And it was the first time I went. I actually texted Kelsey, tried to, but I guess she was like still asleep or whatever because she lives really near there. But um, yeah, but then I haven't gone back out since because it snowed this afternoon. And yeah. So what am I looking at? Where are you? Is this like your- I'm in my office. you're like, yeah. <laughs> my study. Uh, it's my house is a fucking. It's trashed right now, but let's see. Yeah. I'll, I'll show you around a little bit. Um, 
Do you have like a lot of CD CDs, like a lot of CDRs? Yeah, you do. I have a lot of CDs. Last summer, I gave like six or seven hundred CDs to Jim Thurwell. Uh huh. Seven hundred. I, I basically that's like a burden, dude. That's well, so like I, not a present. Well, no, no, no. I went through my CDs and I was like, all right, I, it's time to like start thinning the herd. And my like the the criteria that I that I went by was all right if. If it's like Alice in Chains or the Beatles or something that's like readily available, it's gone. Get it out of there. Yeah. If it's a label that that does not do things digitally, I keep it. If it's a friend CD, I keep it. If it's like some super hard to find thing, I keep it. But yeah. Big... But like the thing is, is like CD rot is real, and I feel like all that shit we've been holding on to, like probably do- doesn't even like you can't even listen to it anymore, which is really sad. You mean in terms of like what equipment you have to listen to stuff? No, I feel like I've tried playing like a CDR at on my parents' stereo at home, and like the the stereo just doesn't read the CDs anymore. Like they're oh, really? all, yeah, they're like fucked. <sighs> okay, so I I know. here's something I'll, I'll tell you is that if you tour as a musician, it doesn't matter at at what level you are. If you are playing for two people in the back of a coffee shop, or for <laughs> you know five hundred people at like a really cool venue. Uh-huh. You will inevitably come home with at least two dozen CDRs from like people you played with. No doubt. Yeah. And that for years has been my graveyard. I, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's you got it. That's you can't get sentimental about that stuff because it's like you didn't even want it to begin with. No, I never you know got what? sentimental about it. I would just feel guilty about it. I would look at it and be like, I can't bring myself to throw away this person's music, despite the fact that like I had no intention of ever listening to it. <laughs> never. You know what's like so weird is. I mean, obviously it's not going to happen anymore, but I would like, this would happen to me, like not infrequently, like guys who are musicians handing you, trying to hand you the CD, their CD (laughs) on the sidewalk. And then if you like look at it, then they ask you for money. Like, oh, you're talking about hip hop. Yeah. Okay. I thought, I thought you were saying like guys that go up to you and be like, Hey, here's my tape. Check it out. What's your phone number? (laughs) No, no. Like, like, no, like MCs. Well, the hip-hop thing is really funny because I remember I was hanging out with a friend in Brooklyn like 10 years ago, and they had a friend from England staying with them. And they told me that they got mugged in Times Square. And I was like, what are you talking about? What happened? And they were like, I was walking down on like 7th Avenue or 6th Avenue or whatever, and this guy was like, hey, check out my CD. you know." And then he was like, pay me for it. I pulled out my wallet, and he said, give me all your money. (laughs) And I was like, so what'd you do? He's like, I gave it to him. I was like, dog, you didn't get mugged. Like, you could have said no or just walked away. Yeah, maybe he thought he was saying it in, like, a menacing tone. Well, so. I'm sure that's what he thought, but uh, yeah. if he just said to him, like, fuck you, and walked away, that probably would have been the end of it. <laughs> he, yeah, I mean, that's he shouldn't have been in Times Square. That's all I have to say about that. So we're going. I was going to I was gonna maybe, like, talk about stuff, but we're, we're off to a good start. Oh, okay, cool. So it's funny that we're talking about this because you exist in a very specific part of my mind in when you and I first started hanging out, becoming friends, you were like, oh, I'd like to check out your music. And I was like, I'll bring you a stack of CDs. And you're like, no, don't. And I was like, no, I want you to have them. And I brought you like a stack of CDs. And then like I realized that you literally didn't have the ability to listen to them. (laughs) 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 And 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 then two years goes by and then I find them and I send you a photo of them and I'm like, look what I found that I've never listened to. Yeah, yeah. So they still <laughs> classic. <laughs> but that like that is kind of like the heartbreaking side of being someone who's released music is like it feels good to give your finished product to a friend and being like, check this out. 
Totally. And I mean, and now it's like what such a special part of like being in those kind of like um, music communities too, is that, you know, you're going to see live music that aren't just strangers and people you don't know, but they're like people, you know, and respect and like hang out with. So there's like this added level of like, this is the crew. Like we're all in this little world together. And so somebody gives you their CDR. It's like a really cool way to see like what they've been working on, you know? Yeah. And it's also Um, like, especially at that level of making music where it's like, let's say it's like a CDR limited to like 50 copies or something. Typically there's going to be nice little touches, like a piece of tape, or something handwritten or something that like you know hopefully expresses part of of who that person is beyond the music yeah totally i mean like they're amazing artifacts too and i mean i'm definitely getting sentimental about it because my the like underneath my bed is is literally full of like shoe boxes of like tapes and cdrs and it's that same thing of i have no way of playing this music but there's something about like the physical object that's more than like you know, like, especially with tapes too. Like, I mean, tape subculture is like a whole other world. I like like didn't even think about, I, I'm not like a head, you know, I'm not like swapping tapes on discogs. Like that's never going to be me. Like people give me things and then I keep them because they're nice. Like, you know, usually made by the musician yourself themselves, like you were saying, or like there's some, something very visceral about how, like, you know, a lot of musicians, like when I was listening to that kind of music a lot, were like, making super small like limited run like additions of things and you could have like a piece of that and it was like one of a kind in a way well you know it's funny like like a lot of people uh in the last two months i've spent a lot of time at home baking two months god isn't that fucking crazy you you start you send me photos kind of at the beginning of the two months but i feel like there's been a real lapse in content from you like i haven't well, yeah i, I mean i feel seen like any more apple apple tarts that you're like embarrassed by i'm not a baker that's like i realized it, I, i'm thinking but you have a lot of opinions i have a lot of opinions about everything but in leading <laughs> up to this phone call i've thought more about this conversation than like any one of these podcasts have ever done because uh-huh. and i realized that i'm not good at baking like the things that I hate about the way that I bake and what the end result is mirrors almost exactly the shit I hate about myself as a musician. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So like not disciplined enough. Like yeah, one. <laughs> technically, you in, technically embarrassing. Well, you can't be, you can't be a free improviser as a baker. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I definitely like have started to think about baking less is strictly following someone's recipe, but more like using that as like the place where you can begin to make changes and adjustments based off of what you want. You know, it's like you learn the the language or like the tools for, you know, a certain kind of art, and then you can decide that you want to like, you know, deconstruct that or whatever, you know, I think. Right. I mean, I but I think like starting from a point of like, like musically, like my sight reading sucks. Uh-huh. I don't practice it. Never had uh-huh. it was never that compelling to me. <laughs> what was <laughs> what was compelling was like fucking going crazy and then like figuring out from there. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a more holistic thing. But I have found with baking, even though I don't have like much respect for myself as a baker, <laughs> there uh-huh. is a piece. Like when I like I was kneading some dough this afternoon. Nice and being oh. in that process uh, for pizza dough. Uh, uh-huh. but just like, like once, like now that I'm kind of comfortable with the dough in my hands, yeah, it, the feeling is very similar to when I'm closing my eyes while I play my horn. 
Yeah, I think like that moment where those physical moves become more like instinctual and you just do them like you know what to do, you know what language to speak in, like you know you do it without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's that's an incredible feeling, you know. I mean, it it I didn't go to pastry school, so it took me a second to sort of, you know, figure out what I was doing without like, you know, being formally trained. You're but- 100% self-taught. I mean, no, I'm just taught by the chef that I've worked for, right. you know, like people like Ignacio included, like, mm-hmm. you know, I always thought like, I didn't go to culinary school. So who are going to be the people that teach me and the restaurants that I work at? It's like very intentional. It's like to work for somebody underneath somebody, like learn from somebody. It's like, how do you cultivate mentorship when you're outside of like, um, like a learning institution or something? Mm-hmm. I think it's really hard, you know in the service industry to like figure out who those people are for you. You know, I mean, do you feel like, is that something you need? Or are you like, I in service industry or in music? I mean, in both, I feel like you, you have some musical mentors. Oh, absolutely. Like when I think about musical tradition, like I'm despite however strange the things I might do, might do that they might be. I have, I'm an absolute traditionalist and the relationship that I have to like Evan Parker or John Zorn, or Anthony Coleman, or Zena Parkins, or any number of people, like the, I go out of my way to make sure that the line is very clear in, in like what the relationship is in terms of, I have the mm. utmost respect for you. And I, mm. when you start talking, I stop talking. Well, I mean, I've heard you talk about John Zorn. And I feel mm-hmm. like there's also like a brotherly kind of relationship there too yeah you know? i mean you know he was you know the uh, like without you know without bullshitting like his musical world was the world that i moved to new york to be a part of and the fact that i did become part of it like was very surreal for quite a long time well yeah that's that's why you moved to new york that's cool but so you so but th- this idea of of learning in a kitchen mm-hmm. having a chef you know, be truly be the chef. And and for, for anyone who's listening, you know, the word chef literally means chief. It means boss. Like it's the boss of the kitchen. <laughs> uh, do you find, and this is, I'm looking for parallels here between music and, and cooking, but do you find like anywhere just naturally, like if you started at the bottom rung, whether that's mm-hmm. chopping onions or washing dishes, yeah, how so do you cute. feel about like, the dudes and the dudettes that come right out of culinary school covered in tattoos, ready to like take on the world, having not done that. I mean, I definitely feel like I work much better with people who are coming into food, maybe at a later point or, you know, are a little bit older and have a little bit more maturity. Yeah. And it's, it's really not about like what, you know, it's about how you are in terms of how you engage with your environment and the kitchen that you're in. Mm-hmm. Like if you're coming out of a culinary school, like, you know, you might not be as humble as somebody who is in a professional kitchen for the first time, you know, I think like, and I mean, obviously there, are, this isn't, I'm not speaking for everyone, like at Flora and Ultra, like it was a really balanced mix of cooks who went to culinary school or, you know, didn't, um, and chefs as well. And I feel like, I think it's easier for me to work with people like teach people, like have a team, like I'm cooks, you know, not like peers, but like, you know, the the people on your team, um, you know, if they are a little bit older, cause it's like the actual pastry skill stuff, you know, is like not, it's not hard. Like I can teach, you could teach that to anybody, but it's like, 
well, are you disciplined? Like, are you a good listener? Like, are you empathetic? Like, are you going to be able to thrive in what, you know, what within our like value system? And that's not about going to culinary school. That's just about like, right. you know, I mean, you could teach it to anyone. Yeah. But what happens when I still remember before I met you, uh, my friend Suzanne, who I used to work with, lives on the Upper East Side. She came to work uh, shortly after Flora had opened, and she was like, you got to try these pastries. And and I'm not saying this to, like, butter your bread or anything, but it was <laughs> liter- away. literally one of these moments of just, like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, I didn't know that that pastry could be this enjoyable. <laughs> and the only reason I even bring that up is, yeah, you can teach skills to people, but there's something that happens— and and I feel like for people like us, we know right away. You can taste, you can hear when so, you're you're experiencing something that comes from someone that really cares about what they're doing. Mm, totally, a hundred percent. I mean, I really, I mean, we all talk about like whether or not you can feel if you're feeling the love in something or not. Mm-hmm. But I really feel like I, you know I can tell like you can you can tell if something's been like thoughtfully put together with like treating the ingredients properly versus you know just trying to get through your day. It's like. Right. makes such a it makes a difference it takes a meal to another place you know mm-hmm. so all right so you grew up in san diego is that right yeah and your 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 father is a professor at ucsd both of my parents teach both. at ucsd actually um my dad um he teaches in the history department um teaches like chinese film and like kind of 20th century chinese history um but my mom teaches too. She's uh, in the visual arts department there. So. I didn't know that. Yeah, but I I like grew up like the first show I ever went to was at the Shea, at the Shea Cafe, um, which was this kind of like legend, like legendary kind of like vegan anarchy like all ages space. But yeah. it was like, but it was within walking distance from our house, and my dad would eat the like vegan soup kitchen lunch. They would have like you know, in the middle of his classes. So he knew it was like legit and safe, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I was allowed to go to shows. So wait, you say the first show you ever went to, meaning the first live music you ever heard or the first show where you and your friends were like, let's go check out a show. Um, it was the first show I went to like unchaperoned by my parents. What was the show? The, cause you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be frank with you, Jeremiah. Yeah. The, the first show that I went to, um, but there, my friend Suzanne's dad was there, uh, <laughs> was at this venue called Soma in San Diego. That was like a furniture store. Uh-huh. Um, but I saw, I saw, uh, Blink-182 play there in 1996. I was 12. Um. At a furniture store? Yeah. It was called, yeah. It was okay. like an old convert. Yeah. Weren't they already but, huge know, at that point? 1996. I mean, I think so, but there couldn't have been more than like 150 people at that okay. show. Like they were still like just like a San Diego, like a shitty San Diego pop punk band. You know, How it was, was like show? my it was like a local band. <laughs> at the show. I, I have to say, and I don't mean any disrespect. Like when I think about like archetypal, what do I hate about music? That's they, it. They check most of the boxes. Yeah. Yeah, they they went to the high school of like the, my first boyfriend went to that high school. You know, it's kind of this in Poway is this like kind of shitty like desert suburb of San Diego. I mean, how big is San Diego? Is it like small it's, enough that everyone kind of? It's so big. I mean, San Diego County um, 
sorry, San Diego County is gigantic, but you know, I think like this, the thing that people think like associate with San Diego is it has like a giant kind of military presence. Mm -hmm. There are like multiple bases. Um, you know, so the city feels really like growing up to me felt like culturally very conservative and, um, you know, there were these like pockets of like underground scenes that were happening, but, you know, a lot of them were more on the like, you know, Swami records, like rock and roll kind of drive like Jehu vibe, you know, not Mm -hmm. really like the, you know, and then you're, you know, but I guess like out of UCSD, you know, there, there was actually like a pretty healthy, like, avant-garde presence I guess coming out of the music department so but I feel like I didn't even really figure that out until like after I had left San Diego if you grew I mean I have to I'm gonna assume things here but like growing up like a university kid both your parents professors like I just have to assume that you grew up like in a pretty cool household if that was who was running it yeah no totally but I mean I actually talk about this with my parents all the time because I feel like my obsession within music is like unrec- unfamiliar to my parents. Like really? they're not, that's at hundred percent. Like my, I feel like my parents, parents taste in music is like so basic, but in like a very endearing way. Like, like how I, so? Like what, what, what was playing around the house growing up? Great question. Um, you know, my mom stu- converted the garage to like her studio and I would look through her CDs when I was like, you know, in elementary school. And so she would listen to like animals era, Pink Floyd, you know, like that's amazing shit later Floyd. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, it's, this, it's, a, it's a sweet spot, but it's like not a cool spot to be in. Okay. But she would like be in like, she had animals. Yeah. And she would listen to like tricky and Portishead, you know, like that, those were like her cool paint. That really? was like her cool pa- painting music. <laughs> <laughs> I like the soundtrack to Buena Vista social club, you know, I, if I never heard that music again, I, I there's a, I, that definitely would be, heard it out of the bathroom in ultra before. <laughs> let me just interrupt you for a second. <laughs> I remember once like 15 years ago, I went to Kim's on St. Mark's place to unload a cool. bunch of CDs and there were, I had like 15 fellow cootie <laughs> CDs I was getting rid of. And the guy, the, the guy working was like, what are you doing, man? Are you trying to de-Africanize your life? And I was like, dude, I work at a cafe. I never <laughs> want to hear this shit again. He was like, say no more. Yeah, and, totally. and I feel like Buena Vista Social Club is very much for me. Like, I only as soon as I hear it, I think about like uninspired cafes. <laughs> no, I swear to God, my parents' dinner party strategy is they have like a six CD disc tray changer, and they they just put those same six CD. It's like it's like a compilation of Miles Davis love songs, right. you know. And then it's like, a, yeah, you know, like maybe like a Sade greatest hits or like you know so on and so forth. Where a brother art thou soundtrack, you know, it's like, <laughs> fuck, it's <is> super brutal. <laughs> it could be worse. It could be worse. And I, I'll give you an example of what's worse. When I was eight years old, we drove from New York to South Dakota, which if you put your foot to the floor, it's still like a three day drive. And my mom played the same George Michael tape the entire drive. Side A, side B, side A, side B. <laughs> I hated music growing up. Totally. I explains a lot about you, actually. <laughs> and what about your dad? Was he, what was he but, into? Yeah, even worse. I mean, it. 
And like, also like Jeremiah, you know, I know my parents are going to listen to this, you know, they're intellectuals. Like yeah. my dad is a, a, a professor. He's a, you know, like my mother is a successful artist. Like they have, um, obviously like incredible, varied taste in a number of disciplines, but my dad, um, I got him once a, like a iPod, like a shuffle where you can only put like 200 songs right. on it. Right. So my dad said, okay, thank you so much. Um, can you actually also put the songs on it for me? T- no problem. Um, and then he gave me a list of all the songs. <laughs> and it was so cute. It was like, um, like Cher and Celine Dion and Coldplay and like John Denver and like the Beatles and you know, <laughs> Jeremiah is shaking his head. Um, my, I, but like, t- seriously though, to give my parents credit, be- I have made them see some really weird music, yeah. like music that I would not ask many friends I have to sure. venture to, you know, like I, you know, if my parents and I, you know, I lived in San Diego for a few months, um, after I moved, before I moved after I moved from Ithaca, like when I was 23, 24, and um, I was booking shows at the Shea. Yeah, we're gonna, we're come... gonna, don't worry, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> but and when I was in Ithaca, they would come out. They they saw once um, Alan Licht play with Aki Yonda, oh like at, at Cornell. And it was really like, you know, it was pretty harsh. Like it was kind of intense. And they just, you know, I could tell they were thinking about it. And it, I appreciated that so much, like that they were that they thought it was provocative. Like they understood it as like a work of art, you know, it wasn't like, obviously they're not going to a concert. Like they would, you know. Sure. But I, I would argue, uh, perhaps out of my element, you're such a restaurant person. You're drinking out of a quart container right now at home. (laughs) It's the fastest way to get it. No, I know. I know. But like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I have to assume you own glassware. (laughs) No. No, no, no. I don't even own a wine glass. It's pathetic. No, but all I was going to say is that there's plenty of people other than like musicians and like music fans who I would have more faith in listening to something intelligently. People such as your parents who I I think, I mean, again, I'm assuming things I don't, I've met your parents before. I don't know them by any means, but who have the ability to approach a situation, excuse me, a situation with er enough earnestness to just like, process something properly which is like take the information in process it ask a question or two and 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 just sit through it you know totally yeah and 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 that can be sometimes an uncomfortable space to be in but you know i think there's like so much that's rewarding about it and so being able to have those conversations with my parents is like was you know a big breakthrough um for like the way that we could relate and 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 talk about like the things we were interested in so by the time you finished up high school the trajectory that you envisioned was writing or what was it (laughs) yeah um (laughs) although i will say like since we've been in this last two months Uh that we're speaking of of the quarantine have been able to put more spend more time writing which has felt really good but yeah when i went to college um i don't know yeah i definitely wanted to be a writer i like wrote you know, I, I studied abroad in Scotland and like wrote for the newspaper there. And I would like go to concerts and review the concerts 
um, God, I saw, I mean, I, I remember seeing reviewing like a cat power show. That was really Really? amazing. She's amazing. Uh, Yeah. Um, I would like go up to Glasgow and see like when vice had a record label, they had this like one band called, um, Oh my God. Like DFA in 1979. Yeah. And then they had to change the name of their band because of, um, James Murphy. Remember that? Remember that? 2003. Something about that seems, seems familiar. I, I didn't know you've lived in a lot of places. I didn't know you lived in Scotland. Yeah. I studied abroad there. So I studied Scottish literature, English literature. I was obsessed with reading, obsessed with books. Um, I, after I started, after I graduated, um, I stayed in Ithaca because I got this job at the, at this like alt weekly, um, newspaper called the Ithaca times. Mm-hmm. Cause I was like, I want to be a journalist, you know, I want to be like a music writer. Like you I love to be a music like, writer, not like news, news journalism. Yeah. Like an yeah. arts writer, like, mm-hmm. like, you know, Alex Ross or like, right. you know, like a, a fabulous music writer. Like, wait, David did, you, did you, did you play an instrument growing up? Yeah, I played the piano for like eleven years. Okay. I was about to ask piano or violin. Yeah, I was in my high school's jazz band too. It's a cool fun fact about me. Improvising on the piano. It was brutal. I was bad. <laughs> I I was I was like I had was like this like uptight classical piano player where I like had to you know I got too nervous if I had to like you know improvise in front of my peers. I was the only girl in the jazz band, so it was also like a very <laughs> you know charged like group of people you know so it it, like i was not free like in that band in that setting like i was like give me all the rhythm parts like i got you that was your that that was your demand i'll play the rhythm parts yeah keys (laughs) yeah you're hiding hiding by (laughs) but then yeah i went to cornell and and all that like i you know, I didn't have access to a piano. Like I wasn't really playing at all. So. Did that was that was that difficult for you, or you were happy to kind of leave it behind? I was happy to leave it behind. I think I I I became so much more interested in just like consuming and listening to music that I was like, you know, that I loved and mm-hmm. writing about music too and going to shows. Like I was so happy to be like on the other side of it. You at know? that time, what was the music that was was resonating with you? When I was at Cornell, yeah, I, I mean, at the time, like there was this, you know, I guess every college probably had something similar, but there was like this cool like student club that would book shows, yeah. and I felt like that kind of like blew my mind a bit. Like I, I mean, I, I definitely saw like you know it was like the first time I ever saw like Wolf Eyes play it was like a fan club show, and I remember it was like over. Um, spring break and they played in like a a rec room in a dorm on Mm -hmm. like the sophomore campus and it was during spring break so um nobody nobody was there (laughs) and was was, i mean wolf eyes is a pretty extreme uh bit of music did you respond to that music immediately um i think i might have already been into them when i when i went to the show i think i already like was into them but i mean there was definitely like some other stuff that maybe i didn't that was new to me then, but I was like, you know, I was writing for the newspaper. I just started doing radio at WVBR. Like I was doing like working nights there. You were doing late night radio? 
It was called VBR After Dark. Um, <laughs> what is After Dark Morning? <laughs> 7 p.m. It was uh-huh. 7 p.m. And I would be, it was literally like this shed in a cow field in Ithaca. Like uh, all the real ones know what I'm talking about. Um, Ithaca is a weird place. The VVR station, yeah. Well, that's also WVBR is also where like Keith Olbermann got his start. Like right. he, he, he was like kind of a you know icon amongst us radio people. Um, but no, I did like late night. I did like night shows, and um, they wanted us. They wanted to pay me to just do like automation. They like would have the computer generate like you know, the whole shift. And then I would just have to like say the ads or whatever. But I like, I fucked around so much with that format. It was amazing. I just like brought in all of my own stuff and I just played songs that were like the same length and kind of like moved it all around. And, you know, how how far, how far would you deviate from what? Yeah. Good question. I, I definitely wouldn't play something that I definitely was like trying to play things that I thought would sound cool on the radio. So I was playing like, you know, like Roxy music or like Sonic Youth or, you know, like rock bands that were, were not on classic rock, like automation for most American radio stations is like garbage, you know, Mm -hmm. there's not, it's like one song from, by one artist. And then, you know, you can't really like, I would just play like a different song off of Nevermind, anything. So I didn't have to hear like the same two songs that they would just play over and over. Yeah. Like even that was refreshing. So like, I wasn't trying to like do anything bad. I was trying to play music that I thought was really cool. That would work within this like rock, you know, paradigm. But, but doing whatever. it without explicit permission. Yeah, that's right. right. It was so fun. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, yeah it was yeah, great. Yeah. It was great. I had a radio um, show when I was 12. Wow! At summer camp. <laughs> <laughs> what was the t- what was like the concept? I I don't think there was a concept. I think it was literally like me and Charlie Looker, like cracking each other up on the mics and then just hitting play on whatever we thought was funny, like Weird Al. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I always thought like I was like I could see myself working in radio as long as it was that. I mean, so much fun. I loved it. I loved it. I mean, I like kept doing radio when I was in Montreal too, and um. They, um, McGill has like a great college radio station, CKUT. Um, All right. So, that, wait, wait, wait. so you went to Cornell to study journalism. Oh, yeah. yeah, I went to, no, I don't have a journalism program there. I actually was spent a summer in Berkeley um, interning at their J school, as they call it in the biz. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I actually, I ultimately didn't go to journalism school. I ended up applying for my PhD, which is an embarrassing story or not embarrassing, but just like kind of a weird, like a disappointing thing in my life that ended up being like the best thing that could have happened kind of moment, you know, getting rejected from every single PhD program that I applied to. Wait, wait, wait. so you did a master's degree? No, that, that had something to do with it. I'm sure. So you, was, <laughs> you didn't do a master's degree, but applied for PhDs. Yeah. Well, cause you know, with some departments you can like build getting your master's into the PhD program, you know, okay. like the first I few no years. Idea stuff works. Okay. Yeah. I, well, I, um, had applied and gotten this, um, grant, um, with the national endowment for the arts to, um, write about like classical music and opera. And, 
um, I came to New York for that whole time. It was insane. It was like, you know, it was a really special, um, like weird week. But after that, I decided to like that. I really wanted to, um, formally apply for, uh, PhD programs like in ethnomusicology. Hmm. And I had, um, when I lived in Portland, Oregon, I had lived with, (laughs) I lived with, um, I lived briefly, uh, one summer with um, my friend Hisham, who runs this record label. Hisham Barucha? No, um, Hisham Mayet, who okay. runs this record label called um, Sublime Frequencies. Yeah. And I, um, like, you know, I, he would kind of let me help out sometimes, like just doing really mundane shit in his basement. And I, you know, I kind of became like obsessed with this idea of like applying that kind of study to music in like, I don't know, you know, in like, China or in Hong Kong. And, um, I wrote, I applied to like three or four of what I thought were the best programs, including McGill, um, in Montreal, they have an incredible music department. Um, and, um, yeah, no, I didn't get in anywhere. I, I, it was like crushing. (laughs) I mean, I would, I I had no idea that you did anything with sublime frequencies. And I would, I I would argue just like with a kitchen and with culinary school, If you get to work for Sublime Frequencies, like arguably what you gain to learn from that experience far overshadows anything you're gonna learn in in an academic setting. That's was certainly Hisham's argument. Like he he was super like DIY and he's you know, he was just really like adventurous and like tenacious. And I think he, you know, had like a very kind of like um analytical like eye towards like the academic kind of industry around, mm-hmm. especially like ethnomusicology. Um, but, you know, most of my parents are in academia. So it, it's like, it was like a format that I understood that I thought like I would like do a family the best business. In. Yeah, I yeah. mean, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but no, I, I didn't get in anywhere. And I mean, obviously, like I didn't even have a bachelor's in a, in a music department at Cornell. So it's like, <laughs> You so know, they're like, like, you know, there are years of classes you would have to take, like to study, like, I don't know, composition technically or whatever. Like, I just didn't have any of those skills. Yeah, but, but I've, you know, I've always like wondered slash been critical of um, schools and, and, and any like established like institutions that like don't take risk on people that like kind of write their own path. You know, yeah. it, it seems like that would be something that would be like exciting. Like, oh, let's here's this person who is making like a concerted and serious effort to like forge their own path. Like, let's help them do that. Yeah, I don't. I I, I know that's naive to think that. I way. know. I mean, I think the reality of these programs is like they'll accept maybe like four or five students right. every year or something. Right. And I think like you know it it ultimately like really was not a good fit. And it and it you know made me pivot into restaurants and into baking, which has been really fulfilling. So I feel like completely okay with so having that not yeah. having worked out. Like at that period of time and at that age, what was your relationship to food like? I mean, I think it was like, you know, I think I was kind of more, um, ambivalent 
about mm. it, to be honest with you. I think like, I, I, you know, I was, ba- I was cooking at home for sure, but I was certainly not baking or had any like real interest in sweets or that craft or anything or like that at all. No, I was like obsessed with music. Like I yeah. was like all I did, you know, it was all I cared about. Um, but you know, that, I think that really grew for me when I moved to Montreal. Um, you know, I thought I went there with the intention of being able to go to McGill or something like that. But, um, I ended up, you know, cooking, baking formally, like in restaurant kitchens for the first time ever. And it was like, it was like completely mind blowing, you know, it was something I attached myself to immediately. Yeah. Yeah. You saw yourself in it. I mean, I was, it was like intoxicating. It was so much fun. I loved it so much. I mean, it was so scary and it was so hard, but like. When and why did you move to Montreal? I, well, I moved to Montreal in like, oh my God, like 2010. Okay. 2010. Yeah. Winter 2010. Um, I moved there like the, you know, the incidental reason why I moved there was my partner at the time is from Montreal and was living there. And I moved there to be with that person, um, who also is kind of like at the time was like a half music writer guy, half like into food, you know, like he like embodied all of these things that I thought were super fascinating, including like a love of cooking and eating and like preparing food Mm -hmm. and going to restaurants and like drinking nice wine, like that, like, my mind being blown by food and like being able to appreciate it and like the care and the craft and the love happened in Montreal, which is like, you know, a fabulous food city. And, you know, there's an appreciation for like ingredients and tradition and having a good time. And, you know, so let's let's go back just a second, because I do want to talk about Montreal. There's a few restaurants in Montreal that I feel like, like I identify with so closely, so, but let's that. let's go back to Ithaca for a second because that's where you got involved with booking DIY shows. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I want to talk about that, and I want to hear about that. <laughs> well, I was like, I was talking to. Um, oh, I guess this is kind of name dropping. This is so annoying, but I was I was texting with um, Bill Nace, and we're like mm-hmm. sending each other like old photos and. I was looking for something and I found like the photo that linked me to like the old Flickr account that I had when I was yeah, doing gigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was like, I mean, it was like heart clutching, like going through all those, reliving all those memories of all those shows. Well, you sent me but, that picture of you with Greg Kelly and Baha Brainy. Yeah. I mean, and is, Tim Feeney. Yeah. yeah Tim Feeney. Right. Like to me and you know, to anyone that listening, was, I will state for the record, as I've stated before, and Perrine, the duo of Baha Brainy and Greg Kelly, is still like when I first heard that music, it turned me around in a way that like four or five other listening experiences have. A hundred percent. Well, I think especially for me with like electroacoustic improv or whatever, it really, it was really, it felt transcendental when I saw it in a live context, you know? Yeah. So I think like, I think maybe the first time I saw them play was actually in Syracuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met them there. And then I think I booked them to play in Ithaca, like on a different tour. Um, what I think Greg was like still living in Boston, mm-hmm. um, at the time. He's but, moved, he just moved um, back to Boston actually. Oh, <laughs> amazing. I mean, I've done a second, but, um, yeah. 
but yeah, and, and, and being able to like, and I think that everyone in the room, like after those kind of shows, we're kind of like all on the same page with that in terms of like, you know, having their minds completely blown, you know? It was the first time where I, I heard music that I, I, I still, I still, I could feel like the hairs on my arm standing up thinking about it where like one, it, I realized that like the dynamic range of sound can be super limited to just very small sound. I'd never experienced music like that where I, and the first time I heard them, I sat next to Greg and I having my ear that close to his instrument and just hearing all this detail that was so nuanced and refined. Mm -hmm. And also just the sound of like, it was the sound like to use like a redneck expression of like a rat pissing into cotton, you know, just like the smallest sound. Well, super subtle. Yeah. yeah and, but also like, there's no pitch. There's no rhythm. There's no melody. This is pure sound. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I, yeah, I had like the like same emotional experience listening to that as I would yeah. like, like autumn in New York by Billie Holiday. I mean, a hundred percent. It's like very moving for me. Like the subtle, like kind of subtle shifts in like tone yeah. and you know, like it's just, you feel like your whole body is like, you know, waiting for the next moment, you know? Yeah. How, like, um, so, so you got into booking shows and how did you get plugged into that network? Oh my gosh. I mean, there was no network for it. That's, that's right. like, was kind of what the, you know, thing was with Ithaca at that time, which is the, like, you know, there's kind of college campus scenes, um, but like a local music scene kind of was more on like on the roots side, you know, there's like roots reggae and like roots rock and there's like old time music and, you know, there's a lot of music that's going on, but it wasn't necessarily stuff that I vibed with. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I think like, I kind of, you know, I was coming into the city, um, more and seeing shows at like, tonic or like you know the issue project lumen gowanus mm -hmm. and i was like you know and i was seeing and at that time like i you know the noise scenes that i liked were like you know new york was such a center for a lot of that music too so i would go in to the city and like kind of you know meet people or whatever and then i just started booking shows um I had helped with the fan club at, at Cornell do some shows like um, when I was graduating, like a senior and right after I had graduated. But then my where it really started, my friend Bob Prohl had a record store at the time called No Radio Records. In and he would. Yeah. And he yes. would have like really, really cool shows. He had killer taste in music. Um, he wrote like a book about the Flying Burrito Brothers. Like he. <laughs> you know, he would book like more kind of like indie rock bands or whatever. Right. But, um, he was really gracious. He was super generous. He would let me book shows there like, you know, for 20 bucks or whatever, like for free basically. Um, and I just started like, you know, kind of, there was sort of this circuit at the time of kind of like a noise improv circuit that was sort of like, um, you know, Buffalo, uh, Syracuse, Ithaca, um, sometimes Binghamton or Rochester, mm -hmm. but then like Albany and Troy, those were, that was part of the, you know, kind of loop and then, you know, New York or whatever. Um, so, you know, a lot of bands, like, as I'm sure you remember, are like booking these, that's how I met, like, you know, your friend Toby was like mm -hmm. kind of like a similar sojourn that he went on. Like people would go on these little like micro 
you know, New York or East coast tours or whatever. And, and I would, you know, I would not only like book a Ithaca show, but also connect them to surrounding cities so that they could like justify coming out enough for a few dates. Like, you know, I, like I, won. I booked, um, I remember like, you know, Tom Carter, um, from Cheryl Ambedee's at the time was living in Brooklyn. He was playing music with Steve Gunn. They, I booked them to play a show in Ithaca and then play a show in Syracuse the next day. Um, but everyone was like so hungover after the show at Ithaca, um, that night that they like stayed in Ithaca and and flaked out on their show in Syracuse. (laughs) But it's like, you know, anyway, it was an amazing time. And also like to really get to know, um, the musicians that were also operating locally in their cities and were booking shows on top of that, like, you know, in, you know, Albany, and Troy, there's like SUNY, there's like also like an academic kind of presence there. And there were, there were people that were booking shows like that Burnt Hills crew, um, out of their house. And then, you know, bands like MPV out of Rochester is kind of like old school, awesome, like, you know, kind of crunchy noise and like weird shit. And, you know, it, it, it was really cool to really feel like that sense of community. And it was really such a community. It was so people would like help, yeah, help each other out with tours and, um, you know, sell merch for other people, like put people up for the night. Like what became my thing was like, I would put people up in my apartment. Um, but then I would also like cook food, you know, it's like musicians would go on tour. And like, I think most of the time people were like, we're going to take you to this restaurant and get food there or like whatever. I don't know if you can describe like how you know uh, with those kind of shows like there's no like green room like i'm feeding part of me booking a show is like okay i can guarantee you like 500 bucks dinner and a place to crash you know and that I mean, would in be 2020 like, that is still like wow an incredible <laughs> offer you just mentioned <laughs> <laughs> i mean sometimes it would be like no guarantee if sure. the band was just like we need to like, you know, stop here and do some, it's fine if, you know, whatever. But for the most time I like tried to promise people like a little bit of money, but I will make like a nice meal. And, mm-hmm. um, I have such amazing memories of making food for people like, you know, Marsha, who's like also, um, loves great food and is a great cook and like cooking for her and like getting out to hate, getting to hang out with, you know, my friends like outside of the gig context, but also like over good, like healthy food, you know, I think it's funny. Like what you're describing is this incredibly maternal experience. And I don't know if, if you ever knew her, but my dear friend, uh, Suzanne Fiol, who started issue project room, she passed away in 2009. One of the first things, uh, when I moved to New York, the first organization I got involved with was Issue Project Room on when it, it when it first started. It was on East Sixth Street between um, B and C or C and D. I can't I can't remember. But her whole trip was she would make food for the musicians before every gig, and she only booked people that she loved and wanted to have there. And yeah. I still remember. I think like the fourth time I ever played at Issue Project Room. Something happened, like my day got busy, and I didn't show up at the at the gig until like you know an hour before before the showtime, and she was legitimately angry with me for skipping out on the meal that she had cooked. <laughs> I love that. And, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just like when you but when I think about because touring is so frequently 
just this really dehumanizing experience. And so when you get to those yeah. those gigs where where someone is like cooking for you and they're showing you warmth and they're like, here's the room you're gonna sleep in, and I you know I put a glass of water out for you, like really, yeah, like really really like simple gestures, yeah. kind of give you enough I gas to keep going for the rest of the tour. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, and also like Suzanne, I definitely looked up to her whole mm -hmm. style and like philosophy a lot. Um, you know, when I was booking shows, like I would always checking the website, like seeing what they were doing. Like I learned a lot about music through like gigs that I would go see there wow. too, you know, like, um, and like saw some, like saw some like real legends and like, you know, definitely. Yeah. She's kind of like, the ultimate, you know, um, in terms of like that kind of loving, like curatorial, but like motherly presence, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to like keep it here for too long. But it's just, I haven't thought about Suzanne in a while. And one thing that was very, 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 very crucial to me as like a young musician was she used to take me along after so I used to take tickets at, at the original issue project room. And she would take me along to the after dinner, after show hangs, usually at Takahachi, which is still to me, like Takahachi to me is such a crucial like touchstone in New York. Uh -huh. but she would always introduce me to people. We'd be out to dinner, like, you know, at a late night dinner with like Mark Rabot. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh and anthony coleman and and these people that like i really sort of looked up to and she would be like hey this is jeremiah he's an amazing composer you need to know like at a time in my life where right. it was i i couldn't introduce myself to people yeah she was like someone who brought people together yeah and she would say hey you guys should play together hey you should you know you should know this person and like i so still cool. i still get choked up thinking about those those dinners those hangs you know happening at yeah, anyway. yeah. so so why did but yeah, you, those were. Why did you leave Ithaca? <sighs> um, I <laughs> there was like the, yeah this one weird year I spent in Oregon, um, but I left Ithaca to move to Portland. Um, mm. This is like a different guy that I moved <laughs> to be with. <laughs> also a musician. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> I moved. So I moved to Portland to be with him and, um, actually, um, got the only, you know, didn't work very much, um, you know, but worked at this record store. It, I worked at this record store called, um, quality records, which is like the annex of, have you been in Portland? No, it was I've like never, the I've annex store to, uh, Mississippi records, which okay. was like in the adjacent neighborhood. Um, but I would like, there was like this really cool Swedish restaurant that was next door and I would go and I'd get like a half a grapefruit and they would brulee it, which I never had it that way before. They'd put sugar on it yeah. and torch it. And then I would go to the record store and I would just sit around and listen to music all day. It was like my dream job. That's, that's perfect. A, yeah. Yeah. So I kind of left Ithaca for all that. I was like, you know, I was ready to move on. Like I, you know, I was at Cornell for four years and then I lived there for in Ithaca, like for about three more years. And, you know, I think like there was a lot of exhaustion behind, you know, booking shows. It, there was a sense of like, if I don't book the show, this will, this won't come here. Like I would book things that I wanted to see. I would book them out of like, you know, just desperation of wanting to see good live music. But yeah. sometimes you would hit this like amazing sweet spot with the community and it would be like, 
I booked um, Jack Rose and Michael Chapman to oh play Ithaca. Um, and I had a local, a, fr- a friend of mine, Michael Hansen, like a local musician, like do like an old time set to open. And it was like this perfect kind of like marriage of that. Right. You know, like the more traditionalists, like in Ithaca, like the older folks, you know, who maybe wouldn't come out to a show. And yeah, and everyone got like so drunk that night. Like, you know, we just like stayed up until like sunrise, like drinking whiskey, literally. Like it was just like something I'll never forget. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you learn a lot about booking. Like I I remember I, I, I booked a show once at Zebulon when it was in Brooklyn. Yes. And I put together a whole night of music. And uh, I'll never forget this moment of just slapping my forehead, feeling like a fucking asshole. Because did you ever know the band Little Women? Little Women? No. Little Women was this amazing band, but they were so loud and so fucking aggressive. And I had Little Women play before Mary Halverson and Jessica Pavone. Cool. No, because Little Women <laughs> just obliterated the room. They turned the volume of the room up to a place mm. that it wasn't going to go back down. Yeah. And poor Mary and Jess had to play after that. And at that point, the entire bar was just like yeah. loud and drunk. And I realized like, oh, yeah, you actually have to like be kind of like conscientious, like how you put these bills together. Oh, my God. Totally. I mean, I felt like, you know, like obviously I wanted to be able to enjoy the sets and like hang and stuff. And most of the time we did. But you know, the people who helped me book and organize shows, it's like, can all attest, you know, it was sometimes you're, you know, you're dealing with like, there's so many problems, so many things that can go wrong, like egos of musicians, like finding equipment and all the last minute requests and, you know, making sure enough people trying to convince people to come to your show, like the grind of that. And at the same time, I was working at the newspaper and, you know, like, I definitely had been, I think, accused of, of, of like covering shows that I'd organized. I mean, I always tried to like, not, you know, it's really hard to, you know, because it's, Ithaca was su- it's such a small town. Like I had wore a couple of hats, but mm-hmm. you know, some people like, didn't like that I was booking music, but then I was also writing about music. But and there people got some pettiness. on which side? Like people who are also in like the DIY or people who are like... Like musicians who are like, how come my show wasn't covered in the oh, newspaper, but right. you wrote about this show that you obviously booked or something right, like that. Right. So I would have to be really careful about that. But I, you know, I would truly believe that like the, the person that I was bringing was like the most exciting thing happening that week. You know, of course I wanted to like also interview and to these people and talk to them, you know, I mean, but there was definitely like blowback from, you know, some people in the community who are like, you know, in Ithaca at the time, there were two newspapers. There was Ithaca journal, which was the daily and owned by Gannett. So it was kind of like a lot of like kind of bullshit republished AP content. Um, and you know, the Ithaca times, which is sort of modeled more after like the village voice, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a free weekly newspaper, um, that, you know, it was like the calendar that everyone would look at to see what was going on. Like you would open the, I mean, we didn't have a website. We didn't have shit. Like you'd open the calendar and you would be like, you know, and bands would, would like, you know, try really hard to make sure their listings got in the paper. Like, I think every, you know, great small town has like a good all all weekly with like that calendar that everyone needs to know, like what's going on where, um, but it, it, it definitely got a little bit stressful to like do both of those things and, you know, make sure I wasn't like pursuing my own agenda too hard. (laughs) It's funny. There's this joke that I've heard Zorn tell a million times, which is, you know, how do you piss a musician off? 
give him a gig. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like it's yeah, like once once you're once you're kind of wearing that hat and then especially both those hats, like you as good as your intentions may be, as guided or as misguided as they may be, you're gonna end up, you know, upsetting people and you know, you know, it's like Totally. And it- I mean and add into that that I was twenty one when they hired me to be right. an arts a- editor for a newspaper and not only was I like a 21, 22, 23-year-old young college grad, I was managing like 40 freelancers who were all older than me and thought they knew better and had maybe had been writing for the newspaper a long time and, you know, had their way of doing things. And that was really challenging. But then also trying to like make sure the needs of the arts community are being met. You know, it's like in a place like Ithaca, like any of these like kind of liberal college towns, like you know, there's just, I feel like a lot of, um, feelings about making sure like, you know, everyone is represented or whatever. Mm -hmm. Sure. So you moved to Montreal for, it was for that guy number two, but Uh you know, yeah, I still kept doing radio. I still kept booking shows, like not as much, but I, I kind of got involved on like a very granular level with like a different music scenes in, in Montreal. That was like some of the, you know, my best friends to this day I met through, you know, those people. Like I met my two best guy friends there at like a Dean Blunt show the first week that I moved. Um, to, I think, yeah, I think it was Dean Blunt, like uh-huh. that, uh, you know, like the first week that I moved to Montreal. And I remember just like, you know, when I moved to Montreal, like I had friends in New York that were like, okay. Cause I didn't know anybody. Like I had no friends. Like I was moving there for this guy. Like I didn't have a community there yet. Um, but I had friends in New York who were like, okay, the only person you need to find, you need to find Catherine Klein. She's at the time was in this band with Blake Hargraves called Dreamcatcher, mm-hmm. And they're kind of this like, you know, legendary sort of like cross Canada, like weirdo kind of like noise dance like insane thing and i saw them play with aids wolf and um best band name ever <laughs> oh yeah yeah i saw them play with, uh it's uh, wolf in this band ultra thin um this kind of like garage band in montreal but anyway um blake was it was kind of like a you know one of the godfathers of like the noise weirdo music scenes in Montreal and booked this festival. Um, he booked this like, you know, music festival, um, at this venue called the brick and would have me cook at them. Like this is, and, and that was really fun, like to be involved with helping, you know, like these like little music festivals where there's like food, you know, there's like a curry, at them, a curry. You know, people are spooning out, you know what I mean? But I would try I, I to definitely like, know about the curry. were you making a good curry back then no i was trying to like do better than that that's my whole thing it's like i was book shows and i would you know i'd try to make these like i would like roast chickens and make chocolate tarts okay i just want to stop for a second and say from the the perspective of i've done like a bit of touring there is like the prospect of a curry is probably the least appetizing thing I can think of <laughs> because they're almost always made like in squats by people who have just no like concept of how ingredients super thin, no salt, like just vegan. vegetables cooked to shit. Yeah. You know, rice that is overcooked. Like there is, you know what, you know what is an, an amazing dish? Perfectly cooked rice. <laughs> oh, couldn't agree more. Perfectly cooked rice on its own is 
is is transcendent in the Just way that, that Proust talks about the Madeline, you know? I couldn't agree more. And the the the, uh, the concept, like when I hear the word curry, like it's kind of a dish that's ruined for me. Yeah, no, totally. That's why I was like, okay, I need to like mix it, mix it up a little bit. Yeah. And I, I remember like I booked that band Spectre Folk to play and it, you, you know, um, Peter Meehan is in that band, was in, is in that band. And uh-huh. at the time he was editing Lucky Peach magazine. And I was like, oh, this is like a food guy. Like this is like somebody who loves food and like, I don't want to let this person down. And I remember I made this, um, like a tart, like a galette, like a savory tart with, with potatoes in it, like mm-hmm. potatoes. And it would, that was what we, what we had, you know, it was like, and I, it was, I remember it being like really good and really flaky. And I was just like, Oh my God, I'm so glad this worked out. But I was always like trying to make things that were like, you know, yeah, a little were, bit were, more. were you trying to cook over your head or you were cooking things that like you knew you could kind of turn out okay? I mean, gosh, it's like so um I think I was cooking things that I thought were going to be delicious. Yeah, I think I was like, you know, stuff that you had like a hand like a handle on like yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, those were like really fun days like, you know, it at a certain point like it was when I moved to New York in uh 2013 that i like fully stopped booking shows like i don't really think i think maybe i might have helped out with a thing here or there but i think i you stopped to commit yourself to food i i completely committed myself to food i like i also felt like i mean maybe you disagree because you've lived here so much longer but like you know i also felt like when i moved here it was like all the shows were still happening. Like people were booking the shows that I wanted to go to. Like I didn't Mm -hmm. have to do them anymore. Like there Mm -hmm. was, you know, there were systems in place. Like, I don't even know like seven years later, if that's still true. Cause like, I really don't Mm -hmm. go to shows that much anymore. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, at the time I was like, Oh cool. I can just go and hang out and listen. I don't have to like, you know, fold chairs for 45 minutes after this is over. You don't have to do that in New York the same way that, uh, you, you you do outside of New York where you have to sort of like galvanize a community. I will say, and I've had this conversation in pretty serious settings with people who actually have the ability to make a difference and don't, which is like, I, th- I think the concert game in New York, I mean, now who the fuck knows yeah. with quarantine and if we'll ever, you know, have live music again, but to actually present music at a more elevated level. I was talking to this cat who wanted to open up a venue and he was asking me for advice. And he wanted to have another venue that would have, you know, low stakes music happening five nights a week. And I was like, man, where, where's your money coming from to open this place? And he yeah. actually had like someone ready to bankroll it. I was like, how about you do this instead? How about you do a monthly commissioning series, you know, where you give, you know, $1,500 to a young musician with the challenge of like create some new music and like actually build like an infrastructure to support that. And he looked at me like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. Like a grant. Yeah, but that, like, so that, I, I don't mean to like go off topic, but all that is to say is I, I think the next challenge in New York isn't like whether or not people are booking shows. It's like, let's book some shows that actually mean something. Totally. I mean, I think, you know, as with everything, like as we kind of come out of this like unimaginable like fog that we've all been in for the last two months, like adapting is going to be essential to like moving forward in any way. Like everything that we thought that we understood and the, as being the way it was before all this doesn't apply anymore. Restaurants, concerts, all the things that we love, you know, and I think 
it's going to be really important that, you know, we're communicating about like ways that we want to like rebuild those things and like having a say in what those new forms of leadership and systems look like, you know, like I want to be a part of that conversation. Like I, you know, it's, it's really crazy to think about because so much of what I love about New York and like that energy is energy of closeness and of chaos and of like the din and like, you know, I, I really like thrive off of that energy. And I think you do too. Like, uh, you know, we're going to have to start thinking of other ways to, I mean, I don't want to go too far off topic, but something that's been really sort of affirming for me to see is how hospitality and restaurant people have been adapting to this thing, especially in the last like two weeks, I've noticed like, wait a second, the people that are like, like, and here's a for instance, uh, and this might be yeah. explained it better than I can, is that, you know this restaurant Baccaro on Division uh, Street? It's it's fantastic. They've been there okay. for over 10 years. The dude that, the couple that owns it live across the street from me, 100%, if you haven't been, we'll go we'll eat dinner. But like, every, you know, everyone who's like, you know, fucked and like losing their shirt right now, the restaurant people are coming up with cool stuff. And I bring this up because tomorrow for Mother's Day, what they've done is put together these flower arrangements and these take-home gift packages to treat mm-hmm. your mother with. Bottles of wine, you know, nice. uh, pasta dishes. Like, a, And I've seen that whether, you know, Ignacio, what he's doing, like putting together, you know, take home these dishes, take home these wines – yeah. Uh, uh, I think like servos, they're doing like a grocery store. I mean, abs, it's really, I mean, I, it, for me, it's amazing to see how people are kind of pivoting and, and, and serving their community now. It's like, and you're seeing it in like bigger ways, um, and in like more subtle ways, you know, and, you know, at Archistratus is the bookstore that is on my block and I've been baking you know, for her once a week because it's, I can walk there and I work there alone and it's been really comforting. But, you know, the remarkable thing about what she's done is she has been doing this for about two months now, but it's genuinely a place of community service. You know, it, she is, is, you know, throwing herself alone into this project that's like providing nutritious, fresh, um, delicious, um, you know, food and things to people. And it's hard to imagine her going back to just being a bookstore after this is done. You know, it's like, it, it, you know, she's doing something that people need. I feel like, you know, people really appreciate it. And I hope that like, you know, some of these things, like, like this is, this is who she is now. Like, this is what she's doing. You know, it's, you know, I've had this sort of like existential crisis, like largely for the last, you know, 15 years. And then especially in the last two months of like, well, who am I? Am I a musician? I'm like, you know, a restaurant person. Like what the fuck, you know? And I will say this, like I have been thoroughly impressed and moved by watching the way, like I'm much more of a restaurant dog than I had thought <laughs> and, and watching, like watching little guys get cornered against the wall and like be scrappy fighters and figure out ways to maneuver the situation. Totally. Like, true, absolute, absolute gangsters. Just absolute, yeah. like, you know, the, the prospect of opening a restaurant, specifically in New York, the prospect of wanting to make hospitality your business, like it is 19 yeah. times out of 20 a you're, losing proposition. Yeah, you're not set up for success. Yeah, and like, and, 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 you know, like the this pandemic has really exposed all of the vulnerabilities and flaws of the industry, you know, and, and like what happens when this is, you know, something 
you know, this act of God, it's like, you know, suddenly people, you know, are stripped of benefits, pay, like, you know, there's no like landing pad, like the, the system, the industry isn't built for, to take care of people in the way that I see in other industries. Right. Um, and I just think that, that, you know, I hope that this moment is like an opportunity to kind of reevaluate like what we demand out of our workplace and like what we want the industry to, to look like, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm generally a pretty pessimistic person, but I do think <laughs> that like, and, and I continue to be pessimistic, but I do think that like people at the, you know, the grocery store by my house where I see Tim all the time, you know, like, of course. I don't think that the people that work there have ever been thanked as much as they have in the last two months, just this yeah. general reset of like, and, and it's something that's eaten at me since I was a teen. You know, I got my first restaurant job when I was 13 and I've always had this like class warfare thing happening in my mind. And I actually feel like people are looking at hospitality and restaurant people like as actual people kind of a little bit more than they used to. Definitely. I mean, I think for sure if it, if it generates more like awareness of the kind of people that maybe we take for granted, I think like that, that feels really good. Like that's so important, you know, like the fact that there are people out there out there are still, you know, driving for Uber all day long. It's like, I feel really lucky that I don't have to do that. And yeah. I like, and I really try to stay mindful of that because like for some people it's not a choice. And I, I've, I've gotten really emotional thinking about my relationship to, to coworkers in the restaurant world. Yeah. In a way that I haven't gotten about music and about musicians. Like when I think about, and like here's here's a shorthand that will mean nothing to anyone listening but you and me. But like thinking about Jerry and Joel and Leo, like these guys, I, I did not realize how important they are to me until this yeah. thing happened. And like just the amount of it is a job working in hospitality, working in, in food, it is a job where you experience humanity in a way that's just like very specific to itself. You can't really compare it to other things. And it's that could mean like getting crushed in service to the point of where you know you think you're going to put your fist through the wall but you get through and have like an incredibly inappropriate laugh with a co coworker and it sort of like resets everything that's your bread and butter jeremiah that is my bread and butter <laughs> i want to ask you what so what were the dining experiences in montreal that sort of convinced you that there was a path ahead of you oh my gosh yeah uh, you've been yeah yeah have you played up there i have played up there and I've had one of the most important meals of my life up there. Oh, at Joe beef, Joe beef. And yeah, I feel like you've told me about yeah. this. Yeah. That was like a very formative early meal for me too. I think it ended with me barfing in their bathroom. I like fell, halfway I fell, through I the fell meal. asleep at the table. Yeah. <laughs> like I remember it was like a dinner with, you know, Fleischer's the I went butchers. For the, I, I went for the butcher blackout in 2016. Wow. Yeah. yeah I, I was there. I don't know what it was like the year I moved there, but um, there was like a chop that was coated in salt that they baked in like a salt crust and it, and the salt had kind of lifted off of the meat and it sort of steamed the meat. And like, it was so crazy, but it was like so rich, you know? I it's, mean, the whole thing with Joe beef and Pierre de Cochon and that meal in particular, the butcher blackout, the whole concept is to kill you. Like they, and they told me when I sat down that we're going to kill you tonight. 
And we yeah. had, you know, a nine they hour. They love it. They're sadists. Well, we had like, I think the meal lasted like seven hours. Yeah. And it was like 38 courses. And yeah. it didn't, there was like, the progression was like perverse. You know, like I, literally like I, after like the 18th course, they brought out a three pound foie gras pie covered yeah. in pickled mushrooms. And it was just like, how do you, like what? <laughs> We ended up, people uh, peed themselves, a couple of people threw up, I fell asleep at the table, and it's like, okay, this is clearly <laughs> what your desired outcome is. I, It's like, it truly was like, eating there is like a only in Montreal kind of like um, hedonism, like for yeah. me, you know? Um, but I, for me, like the, the, the game changer was working at um, Lawrence Restaurant in the Mile End, which... Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like people today know their wine bar Larry's a little bit better, but they're actually like next door to each other. They're uh, occupy a street corner, um, on, um, St. Laurent in Montreal. And, um, I was a pastry cook there and I, that, I think that was the first place I'd ever worked where, and maybe I actually haven't seen this since like a true, like extremely fastidious with like ingredient sourcing, like in a way that I've never, I have not seen in New York city kitchens. Cause mm. I don't think it's practical. Like the, what they, like he would truly not buy things if they were not in season. And in Montreal, like <laughs> winter is like a million years long. Yeah. So, you know, it would, sometimes the menu would start to feel like, Oh my God, like just, um, you know, tedious, but you know, you're just waiting for spring to start. But like the way that he was sourcing everything from like eggs to dairy, to butter, to, you know, they would do, there's the first restaurant I worked that did like whole animal butchery, you know, he was Mm -hmm. really into awful. And, um, you know, I ate a lot of like weird stuff because of him, like brains and, you know, like all the organs and, he was really into, um, charcuterie and, um, curing meat. And I think that there's a lot of, um, similarities between like pastry and, um, some of those processes, you know, like these kind of more labor intensive, like projects that are almost like baking, you know? Um, but I think there, like, I really understood like, and started to value like the ingredient and, and kind of like how it made sense on the plate. And all the desserts there were like, you know, very similar to sort of like, um, like a St. John bread and wine kind of vibe in like mm-hmm. in London, you know, the chef is from London. So there was like a sensibility around like puddings and tradition and like classics. And I love that, you know, and I, I think about that for ultra too, like, you know, having a really great panna cotta, like a plate of biscotti, like, you know, I'm, I'm less interested in inventing something that's never existed before, because I feel like that's all about ego. Like I'm more interested in revisiting you know, tradition and like history and figuring out a way to like, you know, elevate it in some way. I, I feel like, like with a lot of your desserts, and I'm thinking specifically of the panna cotta right now, it is like, honestly, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to butter your bread, but like there's, there's, there's nothing hiding in it. There's nothing like there's, it's dialed back. Like the, uh, when I've described that dish to people before, I'll say it's very understated, you know, yeah. like it's a very, very, pure and honest representation of what this dessert is supposed to be a lot of cow fat yeah it's a lot of cow fat and but it's like <laughs> it's not a lot of sugar no no none of your yeah. desserts have a lot of sugar I, I feel like like most of your desserts kind of i appreciate them because i don't feel like i'm getting murdered by sugar 
Yeah, because I mean, the thing is, sugar is not a flavor. It actually does the opposite. It tends to like mute or obliterate like more subtle flavors. So if something's too sweet, you can't taste like delicious vanilla or like really good butter or like some nice flour that you're excited about. Like sugar tends to to kind of actually mute like, you know, sensation. So it's like makeup or perfume. It's just, yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like a uh, bad adornment, you know? Yeah. And I think trying to figure out, but the thing is, is like used in the right way. It can really like make something feel like decadent or like delicious and like this, you know, powerful way. And, but it's all about just like that balance and, and making these like really micro adjustments and, and the repetition of its culture around tasting that, you know, very well, like, you know, this, I've never worked in a restaurant before ever, you know, including in Montreal where there was such a, you know, rigorous kind of discipline around tasting before service, you know, I mean, sometimes of course it's more haphazard than other days, but for the most part, like the heart and good intentions are there. It's like your last chance to sort of, um, make adjustments, make sure your palate is like at the same place as your peers. And, well, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, I apologize if I'm, if I'm jumping around a lot, but when you're coming up with recipes for dessert, how much are you thinking about the the overall menu? How much are you thinking about what the 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 diner has had before and where your piece of the conversation is going to fit in? I mean, I guess I think about it a little bit differently at Flora versus Ultra. Um I you know, I think one of the special things about a menu in a restaurant like Ultra is that, you know, the, the, the narrative of the menu is like so fluid and it's really designed to kind of be enjoyed the whole way through. So like, I love this, I love like the romance of, you know, having like a half pasta and like a, you know, having a carpaccio, but then finishing your meal with like a little sorbet or like a slice of tart or something like that. I think it tells like a story about, you know, ingredients and flavor and region or seasonality that like, to me, it feels very complete, you know, it feels really, it feels really nice. Um, Flora, like, I feel like Flora, it's kind of like so much work gets put into making a menu change that menu changes are kind of like a one in one out thing. So we'll change like one thing at a time instead of like Mm -hmm. overhauling the whole menu because often like, even after a dish goes live, as you know, there's still a process of tweaking and sure. reevaluating that continues to happen. So um, it can be like a more sensitive time. Even just talking about this right now is like very <laughs> emotional. You're really choked <laughs> up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, like there's definitely like a, a big discipline around it. Of course, like we're only thinking about the diner whenever we're trying to make menu changes. You know. I'm thinking about the diner, but I'm also thinking like, is this something that the team can do? You know, is this something that the team can execute the same way every single night? Like I'm not there, you know, or if I am at ultra, like I'm not working service right. usually. Um, but it's like, uh, if I make this dish, can Arturo slide over from plancha and pick it up? Like, <laughs> can I explain it to Maria in a way that like she understands and we like know what we're going for? Sure. Like, you know, I, I think like, making sure, you know, it like Ignacio says this all the time. He's like, it doesn't mean anything if you've had something delicious once. It's like, what about all the times after that? Like, right. and that really like, 
I really feel that. And I've experienced that. Like I've made things that have been like, I feel like delicious, but then they're like never delicious again. And I like, can't figure it out. And they're like failures, you know? So, you know, it's definitely like a balance of, you know, obviously like changing the menu with the seasons, like being aware of your surroundings, thinking about like, you know, what the diner will like, not having it be like too esoteric or too like, you know, ultimately the thing should be delicious. It's dessert. It's extra. It's, it's, you know, it's something extra. It's, you know, it's not vitamins. It's like, it's a, it's that last chance at joy. It's that like moment of sharing, you know, it's, it's that, it's the gilding, you know, I mean, it's all fun. It's all good. It's like, it should just be delicious. Like, I don't want to overthink it too much, you know, and try to make something that's just like clever. Like I want something that just tastes good. I I guess I'm thinking about this specifically right now through the lens of music. And there's this, there's this, 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 this maxim that was presented to me like 15 years ago by a musician I respected a lot. And he said to me, if you're the best cat in the band, you're in the wrong band. Oh my gosh. Well, it's like big fish in a little pond right. kind of thing. Right. And, and so like, and, and like, you know, I thought about that for years and it, and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's true. It also, to me, a lot of what that means is like when you're on the bandstand, you're supporting other people, you're playing your part and you're, you know, you're doing what you can to lift the bandstand as they say. Totally. And also, and also like having the humility to be like, I have so much to learn. There's so much I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like I need other people's help. Like I want to grow, you know, I think that, you know, at the point where you feel like you're not growing anymore is probably like a good time to look inward and, and think if that's right for you or not. Like when I left Ithaca, I had felt this feeling of like, bursting at the seams to want to see something else. You know, I felt like I wasn't, you know, I was writing for a newspaper, but without anybody to read my writing in any formal way, like I had no idea if I was like improving or getting better or or like, you know, I just had no way of, of understanding growth in that setting. Like, Mm -hmm. and I moved and it was, you know, it was absolutely the right thing to do, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I had a meal within the last year. And it was a spectacular meal. And I was angry for a couple days afterwards at the wine pairing. And I feel like the person who put together the wine pairing had something to prove. I feel like they were trying to put up the most interesting wines they could think of, completely thoughtless of what the kitchen was putting up. Right. It made me angry for days. I felt like everything about the wine pairing was this person saying, hey, look at me. Look at the crazy wines that I know. I I I totally relate. It's, you know, I feel the same way when, you know, you go to uh, certain kinds of restaurants that are maybe fancier and they have like their own pastry department. And it's like you have, you know, you get to dessert and it feels like it came out of another building. I'm like, how does this connect with all the food that I just had? Like, why are there so many like, you know, dots uh, on this plate? Like, this isn't delicious, you know? Like, I... I'm like, you know, people, it's like, you can tell that people aren't talking to each other. I think that, you know, there's, there's like this cliche view that, you know, pastry chefs and like savory chefs, like they're, you know, pastry chefs are are like second rate or whatever. And, and in some ways they're definitely still absolutely still perceived that way in, in the industry by other people. Like, but, you know, for me, like, I'm, I think like when a savory chef is interested in pastry, that's like, I love that so much because mm-hmm. they like actually actually care about 
about connecting those dots. You I, know? I, I think quite frequently pastry is treated as an, it's like, yeah, it's something we got to have. So, you know, put a, put a tiramisu, put a, a molten lava cake or whatever it is, you know, but when pastry kicks, shows up and kicks ass, it is like literally, I just had a really good meal. I just ended with a great meal. I just ended yeah. with like a grand slam. And it yeah. didn't, it didn't, it, you know, I, I guess I am sensitive enough to food that like, I appreciate when that touch is like just right where it's like pastry chef wasn't trying to be a hotshot. They weren't trying to like push aside the last two hours that I just had. Totally. They made sense of the last, it's like, there's this, uh, this expression, um, a meal without a dessert is like a story without a moral. Well, you know, like they just wrapped it up for me and like, yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah. And I agree. Like, I don't want to have my, like, I I don't want to be like blown out by dessert at the end of a subtle meal. You know, like I want something that is in sync. Like the, you want a nice wine pairing, like you're, you're, you're eating. It's all part of this bigger picture. Like, wouldn't you want everything to be like kind of gracefully accompanying everything else? Like, you know, it's, it, to me, like that's definitely a sign of a great restaurant when you sense a harmony between all of those, all of those um, elements. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, so where are we? We're at an hour and twenty-seven minutes. There's a lot I want to talk about, but we could also start like well, getting to the dessert portion of the conversation. I, I, so some musicians or composers and musicians that you and I have like locked in on are Elian Radik. Yes. Charles Curtis. Those two things are very. Well, Charles together. is how we is how we met. Okay, so let me. Well, I'll come. I'll come clean about that. Was when I first started working where we work. I, I was like, I know that person. I can't figure out where I know her from. I know her. I know yeah. her. And then like I saw your name in like Schedule Fly or whatever, and I was like, who the fuck is this person? And yeah. then I found that article, that interview that you did with Charles Curtis from like ten years ago or whatever. And I was like, that's where I know this person from. And I was like, yeah, that's right. I would see her at like issue project room. Right. Well, I, it's so insane that you read that. So I used to write for Dan Warburton. Um, Paris Transatlantic. The website Parents yeah. Transatlantic. Yeah. And that was like the first long form piece I pitched to him. But it was, you know, one of the best, you know, obviously didn't pay. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, I, it, I had met, I knew who Charles Curtis was um, in San Diego circles because he was booking, he was like helping noise guys book weird music shows around San Diego in this like loft in, um, ocean beach. Um, this, like the skaters or, you know, James Ferraro and Spencer Clark are from San Diego and they would like book these shows, um, these noise shows, but he's also, you know, like a cellist, like a, you know, very famously like, you know, um, was like the disciple of like Lamont Young and, and, and it play, you know, records like exclusively, you know, exclusively for like Elian Radik or whatever. But so I wanted to like, but I wanted to know like who he was, like, you know, his whole story. And we like met a bunch of times at his house and it was so like, it was incredible, you know? I mean, but it's that piece, like, <laughs> I don't like, it's amazing to know that it's like still out there. And I mean, you know, the, he found it. I, I, I feel I feel a closeness to you through a shared appreciation of someone like Charles Curtis. I feel like there's a specificity oh, to his playing. I, I too, when I met you, was like I don't know. I feel like I don't just know this guy from 
you know, Russ and daughters or whatever, like, you know, it's like some other deeper thing, but that moment where it clicked for us, like, I remember just feeling like so stoked where I was like, Holy shit. I like, think I met like a kindred spirit at this restaurant where I work, you know, where I'm like, you know, I'm not trying to like nerd out on anybody about the music that I like, you know, I kind of, for me, those circles are kind of separate. Like I don't, it's not, there's not a lot of semiotic overlap with like my friends who are into music and like my friends who work in restaurants. I mean, well, there's, I mean, there, I, it is, it has been so nice for me to have you at work because literally I, I would say exactly what you said, just back to you. And it can be so frustrating. I will have a musical experience where like, dude, last night I played with Joey Barron. Right. <laughs> you know, and that is literally an experience that'll be like, I'll, I'll put that down in like the top 10 coolest fucking things I've ever gotten to do. And then I'll go into work and it's just like, what'd you say, puto? Like what? Yo, you yeah, know, yeah, so yeah. they actually have like, like a, a kindred spirit like that. It's so fun. It's so fun. But like someone like Charles Curtis, like Eliane Radik, like, um, like Pauline Oliveros, this yeah. music is like I don't even know what you could compare it you can compare it to with food because like what is like what is a culinary comparison well I mean I've definitely had some mind blowing um like sushi I'm sure you have too yeah. sometimes I feel like those like very delicate um kind of subtle food like makes me feel that way like wine kind of makes me feel that, wine way. Makes me feel that um, way um you know i think where there's like a lot of shading and a lot of subtlety you know uh-huh. like where you really want to savor something um that's like more cerebral maybe i don't know um what do you think i i, I don't know i think like the food and the dining experiences that most move me the ones where like I actually I, I actually get choked up with certain foods. Totally. And they tend like my favorite I've been very vocal about this for many years. To me, the greatest restaurant in the entire world is Shopson's. Mm-hmm. And I have a relationship. Like and part of it is like my relationship. Like I've been building it. Like I've been making myself a regular there over the course of many years. Like I'm paying that's what it is. Going back to the thing we started at the conversation, I've paid my dues in that restaurant. Yeah. Like I, yeah, ain't, I ain't, I ain't gonna get eighty six. I ain't gonna get you know. Like I'll, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And the food there is it's unapologetic. It's fucking delicious. Every bite of whatever I'm eating, my eyes are sort of rolling around in my head, and <laughs> I don't even know that. Like, no, I do know. Like Zach, who's like manning the fucking plancha, like he knows what he's doing. He might yeah. not have it like dialed down with like a like a pen and paper. You know, yeah, like he doesn't. It's like confident. I don't think there's like a metric. He doesn't understand like fifty grams of, yeah, whatever. He just knows how to make your eyes roll. Yeah, totally. You know, and and couple that with the experience of sitting in that dining room and just laughing your ass off talking to the waiter. It's just it's to me like I I pray that I can offer like a speck of that with a musical experience. Oh man, totally. Yeah, but I but when it does happen, it's like so incredible yeah. you know i've um, had that experience at swan oyster depot in san francisco i've always wanted to go there oh, it's so good yeah yeah i i we, we should wrap up but i do want to talk about one thing before we do which is it's 
the second week in May. And if it uh. weren't for this goddamn quarantine, you would be very focused on your bake sale right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, like everybody else, pretty much everything got canceled. Um, not just the bake sale, but, you know, I, um, hold baking classes for the Lenox Hill neighborhood house every yeah. year. And those all got canceled. I was going to do, um, a mother's day for tomorrow. Um, olive oil cake for God's love. We deliver across the street from Ultra, and that got canceled. Yeah. You know, we were doing these league of kitchen dinners that I was so psyched about. Um, we did the first one. And that one was the awesome. Last, yeah. The Lebanese, last two uh, were, Lebanese woman. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the last two yeah. were canceled. So, you know, and obviously like the bake sale was a big part of that too, you know, but I, it, I really, I think at first I felt like a lot of um, like grief and disappointment around not being able to, host what was going to be like my fourth bake sale, especially writing off of the success of last year where, you know, we raised a hundred thousand dollars for Planned Parenthood in $5 pastries, you know, in four hours, it was kind of, you know, it was completely, let me just tell you, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt, <laughs> but I rode the Crosstown bus to get to the bake sale last year. Oh yeah. Literally with you had company with you. I, had company. I, remember. I, I did, but literally <laughs> as like, each stop as we pick people up, I realized I was like, holy fucking shit, like 75% of the people on this bus, and it's a full <laughs> bus, are talking about this bake sale. And then I got off at 6th Avenue and Houston to walk down, and I saw the line stretching. Yeah. And stretching. You're like, not me. <laughs> no, but it, no, no, but it was like, like, oh, this is what it was like at Woodstock, man, where like they yeah. thought they were just going to have... No, I tell people, I'm like, I feel like I'm programming like my dream music festival. It's like all my favorite people in the food world in one place. Like it was, it was just completely sensory overload, you know, but so, you know, yeah, that's disappointing. But I, you know, what I, where I feel like I am at now, the second week of May, like how I feel about it, um, is, you know, the same thing. I think that the bake sale, like everything else is going to have to adapt and yeah. the concept of what the bake sale was is no longer relevant for like where we are now like you can't have a thousand people get together in soho like it's not touching food like food outside like forget about it like i accept that i think what's going to be really important is is strategizing ways to like how do we create that same sense that same feeling like that same sense of community and that same like joy how can we create that feeling, but in a different way? Like it's mm-hmm. just going to look different. And I don't know yet what that will be, but you know, I feel really lucky that at least we had like the last few years of, 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 you know, having done it. And I feel really proud about that. So, you know, it's, you know, it's, it sucks, but, um, it hasn't been weighing on you or, I mean, are you able to sort of like, I mean, I think like, like everyone, you know, my moods are like a roller coaster. So, you know, some, some days I'll feel okay. And then other days I'll like, you know, feel more anxious or feel more sad or, or whatever. But, um, I, I I, like, yeah, with the bake sale, it's like, it wasn't meant to be, that's okay. Like we'll do something else. It's Mm -hmm. still an election year, you know, like we're still, you know, like I still feel a, 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 a need to like, you know, kind of support others like, and, but, you know, we just, I we just need more time to figure out what that can really look like, you know, mm-hmm. but if you have any ideas, let me know. Have you been baking much at home? Um, n- yeah, just for this 
pastry pop-up that I do on Saturdays. Like I'm not really baking just for myself. Um, but I have been baking like a day, one day a week. Um, which of course, like, isn't this not what I'm used to, but, um, still feels weirdly draining and exhausting. Like it's like, I'm working, you know, 60% less. So how come I'm like 40% more tired? Like, Uh I don't, um, but I, part of it is to like, kind of stay connected to process. Part of it is like, you know, when I'm baking, like I feel my head, I've, it's like exercise. Like I, it's a very good, um, like way for me to relieve anxiety. Um, you know, I, I find that I just tend to focus on the thing that I'm doing right in front of me and I don't, not really in my head so much. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, a, a release. It's kind of a break from all that. And, and that feels nice. So it's like more normalizing. Um, but you know, I have been cooking like every, I mean, I'm cooking. I'm just getting sick of it though. I mm-hmm. just not gonna lie. I, I'm at the point now where I'll wait as long as I can in the day to eat before I like have to eat. And then I'll just, maybe that will just be the one time of the day that I eat. So I don't have to like deal with it again. You're sick of cooking later. or you're sick of cleaning your kitchen afterwards? It's all a nightmare. Yeah. I got to say, with the baking that I've been doing, like, you just have, I guess if you're a baker, you just have to accept that there's like flour residue everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I'm at the point where I like, I think my friend Taylor told me this. She's like, you have to treat your home as like your workspace. Like, you, you know, we sweep the line every 15 minutes. So the least I can do is vacuum every morning. Like, you know, just trying, just trying to think of it in terms of like, this is my workspace. Like what would the standards be like if I were at work because I'm cooking so much more at home now, it feels like that, you know, it's just dishes constantly. I mean, what, what, what have you been baking? A lot of pizzas. Like oh, amazing. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's kind of, it's funny. Like I'll, I'll talk about this for a second. I, I started making pizzas in 2008, 2009 and the experience of making pizzas has been the same experience of figuring out a solo language for the clarinet oh, and it's it, ongoing I, I and it, it, it is it's ups and downs highs and lows and the second <laughs> i feel like i make a breakthrough like i have to like start all over again <laughs> so are you like do you do you have like um a strategy for like documenting the trial and error or is it just going off a of feel and memory or are you more structured about it or I document the trial and error and literally I've probably made 700 pizzas and l- every single pizza I've made I try something a little bit different each time and uh, I try to hang on to what works and right. you know and then I try to sort of understand like what okay maybe I'll do this something different this time as long as that thing is in line with a tradition that I'm sort of have in mind, you know, like right. my ult- my favorite type of pizza in the entire world is New Haven style pie, particularly oh, from Sally's. Sally's pies to me are like where like the bottom line is. Wow. So you prefer a New Haven pie over like an NYC slice? Anytime. A, th- a hundred times. A thousand percent. I will say this, and I'm, I'm at the point now because I've been experimenting with flour. Fuck bread flour. <laughs> wait so i'm curious like do you feel like in this period you're um like being productive creatively like with music or is that something that i've been getting a lot done yeah but i really? it took a while i would the first like four weeks i was just like paralyzed by depression totally. and anxiety 
Yeah. And yeah. I mean, just like you were saying a second ago, like I didn't take my horn out of the case for almost four weeks. And the second I did, and I'm talking just playing long tones and playing scales, I felt like myself like sort of being revived, the color coming yeah. back into my face, like yeah. just doing the thing. And I, strangely, I have that same experience with pizza. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I feel like I've been hearing a lot of stories from people who are like creative people, like writers or artists or musicians or whatever, who been struggling with um you know producing new work or, or anything during this time even though it's being heralded as this like unprecedented amount of time we all have now you no know? no I, there's like a pressure it's there it's pretty well documented at this point that this is not the time to write your masterpiece but fortunately for me very much the last three years has been marked by the fact that like i have like three or four projects that should have been done a couple of years ago that i'm now actually completing yeah so i'm yeah wow can I ask about your Pioneer Works residency? It's all, yeah. it's all canceled. I mean, Ugh. that there's. I'll find out next week. There should be. There's. There's a chance that because that residency would entail me being in a room by myself all day. Yeah. There's a chance that it might still happen, and if it does, it'd be great. Right. You oh, know, right. and it'll be a change right. of scenery every day. There's a million reasons why I should like. If I can still do it, I sh I will. Yeah. But. It's probably not going to happen. The roulette thing's been blown off. Like, yeah, it sucks. But Natasha, I yes. adore and and cherish every opportunity to get to talk with you. And I'm really happy and thankful that you made the time oh to God, talk tonight. Such a pleasure. Huge fan of your podcast. Um, it's like an honor to be here. Truly, like I'm straight up. I ha like. I, I'm know. bummed that the only I think the only meal you and I have ever shared was at Blue Smoke before a show at uh also blue hill you see what i did oh, there oh shit you're right okay the best meal of my life I, I got to eat with you okay done blue smoke i think we just had like fries yeah, or yeah okay but like, you just reminded me we had lunch at blue hill which completely changed the way i thought about food so mind-blowing mind-blowing yeah. i mean i think about i thought about that letter you wrote after before too and i think like it it addresses a lot of those feelings of of community and and storytelling and like euphoria that is like kind of we've been talking about that lunch um, reinvigorated my what my understanding of hospitality and and dining is yeah it yeah. It, it was really special i'm just never gonna forget that um right. perfect top to bottom i'm gonna turn this mic off and then we're gonna talk about that other thing thank you yeah thank you all right i hope that you guys enjoyed that that was me and my good pal my good pal, pastry chef Natasha Pickowitz. Goddamn, you know, for the you know, it, it, it's not like the kind of thing where I can play like a sound sample and you're like, oh yeah, I get what that's about. Like you have, have to, have to, have to, have to check out this this woman's food. Absolute soulfulness and mastery within the medium. When quarantine's over, like I said, we're going out to eat. We're going to Ultra Paradiso. We're going to Flora Bar. We're going to Estella. We're going to drink natural wine. We're going to eat masterfully made food and Natasha's desserts. And that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. I hope, uh, I hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll be back next week. And until then, um, you know, hang in. That's all you can do. All right. Bye.